This is FX Radio and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And with me in the studio today is none other than Dr. Mark Donohoe. Welcome, Mark. How are you? Good to be back. Dr. Donohoe, today we're going to be talking about chronic adrenal stress and the forgotten organ. Now, as a, as a little prequel, you know, many practitioners are quite well versed in the concept of hypothalamic pituitary axis or adrenal axis. HPA Dis- axis. HPA yeah. axis, that's right. Um, but they're not well educated, seemingly, on the anatomy and physiology of this forgotten organ. We've forgotten a lot. I think we have. I think what, we, what we've nailed is we know the pathways. I mean, everybody knows the pathways. Cholesterol is your kind of precursor for all those things called sterol hormones. And the sterol hormones, we know the names, cortisol, aldosterone, progesterone, pregnenolone. We know that they're all derived from cholesterol. We know the biochemical pathways and we can kind of draw that out. And I think everyone's seen that. But we forget that there's the anatomy of a gland, And knowing what the adrenals do also requires a knowledge of how they're constructed. Mm. What do they do in response to real-life situations? And so we know, okay, if DHEA drops, that's not a good thing. If pregnenolone drops, that's not a good thing. If the cortisol's too high for too long, we know that they're not good things. But what we tend to forget is there's a reason that the body ends up in those states. It's not a disease state. It's an attempt of the body to adapt to unreasonable circumstances and knowing the structure and the function of the adrenal glands I think is really, really important. Because it's not one gland, is it? It's not. I mean, it's it's kind of the gland that responds to the bad news of the body all wrapped up in one little package. Mm. One sits on top of each kidney and when you've got a pair of something, you know it's an important organ. You, you know, you don't want to lose your adrenal glands. And so it has multiple jobs they're all wrapped up in a, in a kind of anatomical package. And this gland, unlike almost every other gland, the blood supply comes from the outside. So the blood vessels come from the outside through the capsule and then go down towards the middle. So there's almost a kind of prioritising by the adrenal saying the most important things get the blood supply first, mm. the next most important thing second, and right down the bottom, poor little sex hormones, they're the last on the list. And so the anatomy of it, and the physiology of it is really, really important to understand. So let's review this anatomy from the inside out, Mark. Okay, so I think the best thing to start with is the adrenal is at least two glands. It's got lots of different functions, but if you think of it as two different glands, the first one's got a blood supply to the middle of it called the medulla. And the medulla of the adrenal is the thing that, that's the engine house for adrenaline, for noradrenaline. This is, these are the hormones that flood into our system that we all know as flight, fright, and fight. And so we're all aware that the adrenals cope with this, but they cope with it in two very different ways. Initial threat, the tiger chasing you, within a second, the medulla is pushing adrenaline, flooding your system with adrenaline. The eyes, the pupils dilate, the muscles get all the blood supply. And interestingly, they steal, that's stolen from the splanchnic bed, which is the blood supply of the, um, of the gut. gut. Mm-hmm. So you sacrifice non-essential things to get the muscles moving, to keep the brain on super alert mode and to get away from your predator in the kind of classical sense. Mm-hmm. But that's one organ within another organ. That's and the blood supply and it's swift and it is unstoppable. There is nothing that you can do and to get out of And this is a nervous g- tissue gland, isn't it, inside? It in is, yeah. It affects the nerves directly and the dilation of the arteries and the dilation of the blood supply is almost instantaneous on the threat. But the, we can sometimes mix those up. We think flight, fright, fight, that's the adrenals. Mm. 
But the first one, that release of adrenaline and, uh, and its metabolites, that's lasting seconds to minutes. That's to get you out of the poop. Mm-hmm. What has to happen from that point on is that there has to be a transfer to the other function that just happens to also be in the adrenal gland. And so the second organ, this first one has the blood supply coming in, floods the system. The second organ, the outside part of it, weirdly has the blood supply coming the other direction. So the capsule around the adrenal brings the blood supply in and it percolates from the outside, drifting down into the gland. Mm -hmm. The outside layer has one function, which is maintaining blood volume and blood pressure and maintaining sodium. The middle layer has got the what we all regard as adrenals, the glucocorticoids or cortisone, and its job is entirely different. It's to diminish inflammation and handle stress in the broad sense, which we'll come to. And then the inner layer, the thing that probably all of us really love, is the sex hormones. Mm-hmm. They're kind of low on the priority list. When th- something's chasing you, when infections are going, you'll sacrifice the kind of the last thing, which is the sex hormones. And so that kind of gives a priority system to the adrenals. The so outer all... layer takes over from the inner layer very, very swiftly, but not in enough time to be able to get you away from your predator. So it's a perfect example of the elegant control mechanisms to enable survival of an organism. That's right. Mm. And it, it's beautifully designed that when all is running on normal, when the stresses are not high, each of those zones does their own job. And they enhance survival and when necessary, when the stresses are high, different zones, the, the middle zone, which is uh, the, glomer- uh, the zona fasciculata, it's the one that's producing cortisone. It has the ability to take over the function of the outer layer and the inner layer if necessary. And so what we end up having is something that will preserve life in the long term. If you think of this classically as how do you get through winter, you rely on the cortisone. It's a catabolic hormone. And I think, you know, that's something we also need to discuss. But a catabolic hormone sacrifices protein in order to maintain survival. People think catabolic and they think, oh, God, you know, that's like uh, concentration camp survivors. That's Mm. not it at all. Mm. You sacrifice lean body mass, but in fact, the catabolic hormones like cortisone put on fat. So this explains the Addisonian-type body image compared to the Cushing's-type body image. The Cushing's-type body image is not, when you think about cortisol being a catabolic thing, Mm. if you look at their body type, they've got a a round midsection, a round moon face, but very spindly, skinny legs and arms. Mm. That's the metabolism of protein. But they're disease states. And so, if you like, the mistake of my own medical profession is we think everything's normal apart from Addison's, <coughs> which is adrenocorticotrophic hormone deficiency yeah. or adrenal ACTH deficiency or um, adrenal failure more commonly, mm-hmm. all the way up to Cushing's disease, which is the inability to stop cortisone production. We forget that there is an HPA axis. There's a control mechanism all the way from the parts of the brain, the conscious parts of the brain in humans, the frontal cortex, feeding down to the hypothalamus, to the pituitary, and ultimately down to the adrenals. And so... Doctors are always interested in true pathology. Is the adrenal gland stuffed and yeah. unable to produce or is it unable to be stopped? And you can think of cortisone, that is a catabolic hormone, but the fat percentage of that person and the fluid retention and all of the things that go with it do give you an idea what cortisone does. At the other end, if you don't have your corticosteroids, the Addisonian picture of wasting away, of blood pressure dropping almost to zero, that is 
another disease and shows you what happens when you don't have any of it. Mm, mm. So you, we, are, we are talking mainly about people in the middle. What we're talking about in normal day-to-day healthcare is not the extremes of disease, but the maladaptive response of the adrenal gland. Mm. A job it's meant to do for six months at the most, you know, get you through winter, it's capable of doing that brilliantly. What does it do? The cortisol turns on, you retain every bit of fat that's possible, you sacrifice the lean body mass, say we've got to get through this next six months and we've got to be alive at the end of it. Great trade-off. That catabolic trade-off is good. What's meant to happen is spring comes, summer comes, and you get back out. The bear leaves the cave, starts eating a hell of a lot of fish. You get your protein back and you switch from the catabolic response of cortisone to the anabolic response of the se- what we call the sex hormones. Mm-hmm. So estrogen, uh, testosterone, and even um, insulin. Yep. These are all anabolic, which means they rebuild protein. They hold it back into the system and they work the other direction. So the adrenal glands seem to be born for a yearly cycle. You can do your stress as long as it does not extend too far, and then you can recover from that because now you can shrink away the cortisone production and go back to the testosterone estrogen production that's required for long-term health. But the problem happens when we get a long-term chronic low grade, not not pathologically causing um, mm. disease process, but um, a long-term chronic... Um, I think the word is stressor. Stressor, yes. And that's, and that's where a lot of confusion arises. People think of stress as, am I psychologically stressed? Mm. They forget that the stressors in life are infections, even temperature changes, missing sleep, you know, or abnormal sleep cycles, the kind of diet that you eat, <clears throat> especially anything that induces inflammatory mm. responses, whether that's in the gut, the brain, no matter where it is. These are all stressors on the body. Hans concept of stress being the thing that stresses the body. Mm. And we're really good at picking psychological stresses. And in fact, us doctors are great at accusing everybody of just having psychological stress and missing the physical, infectious, dietary and other stressors. But the combination, the sum total of all of those things, you can ask the adrenal glands, are you under stress? And they're pretty good at telling you the answer. You don't have to go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist for these kind of answers. So moving to the adrenal cortex, Mm. um, can you explain to me the function of the cellular type that that you see? Okay, so the very first thing, when the blood comes through the capsule on the outside, it percolates down through the adrenal cortex. And we're separating the cortex is the whole three layers, the medulla is that inside adrenaline-producing layer. So when it percolates through the top of that, the very first layer of cells, very thin layer, uh, called the zona glomerulosa, they're the ones that produce aldosterone, they retain sodium, they retain fluid in the body, they stop the adverse effects of blood loss. So if you get injured or a bleeding or a, any of those, it's very important to maintain vascular volume. And so that first layer of cells have got the job of retaining fluid volume, and when they fail, <clears throat> you tend to see people with very low blood pressure, and more importantly, when they stand up, they feel dizzy, the blood pressure starts to drop. So their job is maintain fluid volume, maintain vascular volume, and make sure that the oxygen is delivered around the body. The next layer down is a much, much bigger layer, and it's full of fat, and it's full of a very particular type of fat. It looks like fat cells when you, when you look at it under the microscope, and it's full of what? LDL cholesterol. The very thing that doctors have as public enemy number one is exactly the fuel that the, uh, this particular second zone of the uh, adrenal gland runs on. So it will turn the body on to produce LDL 
and load it up into the adrenal glands, ready for action, ready for cortisol production. You come down to the third layer, the one that's closest to the medulla, and we're back to sex hormones. So these are the kind of low priority on the list, the so-called anabolic hormones. And you could say, well, you know, evolution normally wants sex to happen and normally wants procreation. And that's true, but these are only of great importance once the testicles or the ovaries are no longer doing their job of very high production. So at menopause and as males age, the testicles and the ovaries do less and less of the job of estrogen and uh, testosterone production, and the adrenal glands take over more and more of that function. So you can make the evolutionary argument, once you've finished procreating, <laughs> why even bother about <laughs> sex hormones? They're, you know, The quicker you die, the better, because that makes way for the next generation. So that beautiful design is a priority system. What does it take to keep you alive if you lose blood? What does it take to manage the stressors, whether they be infectious or anything else, cortisol being able to sacrifice body protein in order to maintain survival? And then what do you do for procreation and rebuilding of tissue? So the anabolic hormones, we call them sex hormones, but in fact, they reconstruct protein. They allow for the regeneration. As anyone who's taken testosterone in bodybuilding will tell you, they, they have a potent effect on rebuilding the tissue that you may have lost to fat. And here's the trick. Within a six-month period, that middle zone does not steal from other areas. It just works by itself. The aldosterone works and the sex hormones work and all is cool. But when you get prolonged low-grade stress, the middle zone starts to creep into the other zones and almost grab cells from there to become cortisone-producing cells. And so you see this with chronic stress in patients who turn up, that the chronic stress is ultimately resulting in them being unable to manage their blood pressure. These are the women who I see regularly where they say, oh, my blood pressure is perfect. It's 90 on 60. So there's a, there's a hypertrophy, atrophy sort of... Well, it's not even hypertrophy, atrophy. It's just it. the body has the ability to grab cells that have one function and say, look, you're an adrenal cell, come and help me. Wow. And it's, a, it's meant to be for temporary use. But when we have chronic stressors, we steal from the sex hormone producers and mm. we steal from the aldosterone producers in order to maintain that cortisol over long periods of time. And this is the adaptive response of the body. And the assumption is stress will end. In evolutionary terms, whether it was a predator time or whether it was starvation of winter or whether it's hot or cold, there was usually an end to it, and if it wasn't, you were damned anyway. So it, it, it is a sacrifice system in order to get through. So, you, so you've got a, a chronic stressor response, if you like, stealing from regeneration of muscle tissue. And stealing from, um, for stealing from blood volume and the ability to maintain good circulation around the so body. So symptoms like fatigue, lack of concentration, um, uh, muscular, muscle weakness. Muscular weakness, yep. all of those things. And... What people frustratingly <clears throat> complain of most, body weight gain. They put on fat and nothing they do seems to be able to shift it because the body is in this state of we are going to conserve every gram of fat and even if we've got to sacrifice all your muscle, we will conserve that so that you will get through this supposed winter or this stress period. What about immune suppression? Yeah, immune suppression is very important because part of what is turned down by the glucocorticoids is an over-aggressive immune response. They're, you know, the glucocorticoids cortisone responds to infection, responds to injury, responds to stress. It's got to maintain that very, very fine balance where you want the immune system to be strong enough to beat up the enemy and you've got to have the regenerative powers capable of you know, fixing the bones, <laughs> but you've got to not do so much damage that you just escalate the problem out yeah. of control. Yeah. 
And so what did, what did doctors call prednisone? They called it vitamin P. In the old days when I was you know, out of medical school, we would give prednisone for everything because if in doubt you, and you didn't know what the body was doing, just shovel it full of a cortisone and it'll sort itself out. It wasn't a great idea because it does then suppress the adrenal glands completely mm -hmm. over a very short period of time and you find it hard to get the person off. And prednisone is not the same as all the cortisones that the body produces. It's a much more complex system than just one, one particular type. But inflammation control is the goal, but it's a very finely worked system. And you don't want too much of the cortisone, otherwise you'd never get to the end of the infection management. Something I've been reading about just recently is something called glucocorticoid receptor resistance. Mm. And it's really interesting to me because we keep on measuring cortisol levels, just like we used to measure thyroid hormone levels. Yes. But that's got no bearing on how that hormone works in the tissue. Likewise, or similarly, the cortisol has, you know, is that really the, the bearing on how that works in the tissue when we've got a receptor yes. resistance? It's a, it's a thing we forget, that for all hormones we produce, we're producing a molecule that has to find a receptor to have its action. It's not just cortisone floods the system and it's like, you know, sh enough sugar around there mm. and things just happen. Mm. There's a release, there's a receptor, and there is a control mechanism that's partly immunological, partly variations of receptor expression. So it's a very complex system as you run down that line. And there are also external factors. A lot of the old organochlorine pesticides and many of the current pesticides also fiddle around with the cortisol receptors. And so you have a very complicated problem that most, many or most of the uh, toxic solvents and lipid-soluble agents in fact fiddle with this very receptor and make it very difficult for the body to be able to release a given amount and know what the outcome is going to be. So the, there are acetylcholine receptors for the brain, there's cortisol receptors, there's thyroid hormone receptors, and we're just learning that the manipulation of those by the body has five or six different layers. Mm. We give prednisone and we kind of fill the body with something, but the medical approach is a very, very crude approach. Things which adapt the person back to normality have a much more credible long-term outcome than any of the medical interventions which built the, you know, if you like, built the adrenals or emulate the adrenals mm. in a way which is crude. And so finding a way to restore the person to normality with the adrenals still functioning is not something that I think medicine's good at. I, I, what's interesting to me about this paper was that it's chronic inflammation that's causing this resistance yeah. in the glucocorticoid receptor, exactly like insulin resistance, exactly like thyroid yeah. resistance. Yeah, and we're, we're coping with all of these. In fact, a lot of what we just call insulin resistance it's not purely insulin no. resistance. Insulin resistance is because we think type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance, and then we know it. But the corticosteroids and their part in, in glucose metabolism, in releasing glucose and in placing, placing a load on this, remembering that the um, pancreas produces insulin, which is an anabolic hormone. The adrenals produce the cortisol, which is a catabolic hormone, they're fighting each other all the time. And the insulin has the job of packing stuff away in storage so that we can get, you know, get that in the future. And the cortisone says, no, give me more. We actually need this stuff now. Mm -hmm. So you, you end up with a battle going on between the hormones. And while I believe insulin resistance is really important, it's not separated from glucocorticoid resistance and, and adrenal function. They are all part of that same package of release energy, use energy, burn energy, or store energy. And, uh, and, uh, and the aberration or the dysfunctional um, 
picture where you've got inflammation blocking yes. each each usage. Yeah, and, and inflammation, I think, is the big issue, hmm. at least in the medical mindset right at the moment. You see this with the microbiome and the inflammatory, the pro-inflammatory microbiome. But if you gave doctors in 2014 the option of one thing they could do perfectly and without adverse effects, it would be inflammation control. Mm -hmm. Whether that's cardiovascular disease, whether that is diabetic complications, whether that is arthritis, what used to be the problem of keeping people alive and keeping the immune system active enough to win the fights is now how do you put those fires out? And management of the adrenal function, the reason I think we can call it the forgotten organ is we focus so much on inflammation and we focus so much on the infection or the agent or the point of where the inflammation's obvious and forget that there's a whole, it's like a, a fire engine that's coming from all different directions. We have no concept of providing the adrenal support to see this reach a successful conclusion. And I think this is a, an important point, the, the wording that you used, inflammation control rather than blocking. Yeah. We get into this mindset of a switch, on, off, block or or upregulate, and the body elegantly controls things. Mm. And I think this is a perfect place to talk about what do we do for this chronic inflammation. Um, so things like sleep management, for instance. Yeah, yes, yeah. There, the body falls into a lot of patterns. You know, you know, when there's chronic inflammation, especially infection, we sleep. You must sleep 18 hours a day. There's a regenerative cycle that happens with the sleep-wake cycle, and we're pushed into that. Mm -hmm. And fighting against it and going to work, you know, the old soldier on, yep. really bad idea. A, the person stays sicker longer, and B, everyone else around them at work gets sick <laughs> with exactly the same bug. So the soldier on concept really doesn't work. Yeah. There is a cycle which we are not used to in 21st century medicine. That is seeing a disease work its way through, supporting all the bodily functions, having your fluids, your chicken soup, your rest and your sleep. That's kind of old-fashioned. Now we have pills and potions that allow us to get back to work. They relieve your symptoms. That's right. And then they allow for persistence of the inflammation. And instead of there being the passage of, the passage of give me the glucocorticoids, okay, now give them, rush them out and bring the infection to an end, now we put up with chronic low-grade inflammation and infection and we assume it's normal. And then people, after years of that nibbling away, that termiting away at that system of normal control, come to me with, oh, I'm tired all the time. And you take the history and it's infection. Did you recover? No, I didn't really recover, but I got back to work and mm. I was good. And then one day, they don't get back to mm. work. And one day, the reserves are used up. And if you think of the adrenals in a bit that way, it gives you the credit card that you can buy things on for a while. One day you're going to have to pay that bill back and the interest that the adrenal glands charge you is excessive. On the other end of it, you've lost your reserves, you've made it through the crisis, but now the crisis becomes a long-term lifestyle thing and now breaking that cycle is the devil's own job. So let's talk about what sort of things you can do when you've got somebody that presents with you know, chronic adrenal burnout or, or, or fatigue. Where do you start? That's, that is the million-dollar question. For every person, the where do you start is why they come and see practitioners. They say, I'm tired all the time, I'm weak, you know, my blood pressure is dropping. They give you the list of things you, they can't do. And the going back in the history, to me, is the number one critical thing. If you ask what happened in the year before they felt this way, 90% mm -hmm. of the time they give you the answer. And sometimes it stretches back even before that. Did they have allergies in childhood? Did they have, you know, were they gluten reactive or milk reactive younger? But if you build that kind of stress inventory, 
you take the time to question the person and you tick off the things. Okay, so the foods were a problem and, you know, high-level stress, higher school certificate, really interesting at this time of year. That finds the weak points of even the most vigorous 17 and 18-year-olds. So you can find the stressors and then you tease that apart a little bit and say, what can we deal with and what can we not? Sometimes there are simple chronic infections. Sometimes you can help with allergy. Lots of times you can help with the diet and you know, restriction of certain foods or changing the diet around to one that is healthier where you've got a good quality proteins coming in and the carbohydrates get dropped. That's the other thing we forget with adrenals. They are there to liberate sugars. If you flood the system with sugars, you get gut cells producing pro-inflammatory things and then you're fighting yourself. So you're put, using the adrenals to put out the fires that the diet brings in. Getting sleep is one of the hardest things to convince people to do. People think of sleep as that thing that happens at night without any respect for the ability of sleep and a good sleep-wake cycle to help the adrenals. Why is that? because melatonin is released by the pineal gland and cortisol and melatonin run on this never-ending cycle. The melatonin rises at night and as it drops in the morning with light, the cortisol kicks in and it learns where it is mm. in that metabolic cycle. So mm. the morning peak of cortisol is critical to a person getting enough protection. It drops through the day so that they can get on with the other jobs of life as well. So that's the starting point is in lifestyle. When they see a practitioner, though, they're after a pill or a potion mm. or a herb or something. Mm. And there are things you can do. We do know the building blocks of the adrenals, the vitamin B5, the calcium ascorbate, the calcium with the uh, vitamin C at a couple of grams a day. We do know that things like magnesium and coenzyme Q10 are critical to those functions. And so getting people nutritionally replete with those agents. I think CoQ10 is really powerful, but the, the whole package of those together is the building blocks of the cortisol production and it allows for an easy cycle. And then you can get onto things which I'm not well trained in, but which herbalists are well trained in. I, I use the packaged versions of the adrenal hormones, of the adrenal herbs, but I do know that acupuncturists and herbalists are much more capable of finally adjusting the herbs to give the adrenals support, to give them stimulus, to give them to get them back into working order. So I tend to refer people then on to TCM practitioners for acupuncture and herbs, and to Western herbalists for the same process. Mm. I'm um, I, I love my herbs. <laughs> I know, I know. And I wish I'd learnt them. You know, we, we went through medicine. We know they're all derived. A lot of the drugs are derived from mm. herbs. Mm. What did they not teach us? The old pharmacology, the deep pharmacology of herbs and combinations. To me, I, like, I could never practice without herbs, I don't think, because I love the balance that they add to the, to the therapy of somebody. Um, and, you know, you and I were discussing earlier these beautiful herbs, the, the ginsengs, even though some of them aren't, um, but the adaptogenic type herbs, yeah. you know, the withanias and the side ginsengs. And it goes against our medical training. In our medical mm. training, it's always what's the active ingredient yeah. and you use the least number of those things possible. I was impressed years ago with the Cochrane and St. John's Wort that they were as more potent than the antidepressants. But what was strange is, unlike drugs where you add more and you get more complications, when you add further herbs like hops and other types of herbs, mm. the complication rate drops and the effectiveness goes up. Mm. So we are creatures of evolution. We are adapted to the molecules of life. It should come as no surprise to us that the molecules that are invented by humans are not as good or as sustainable as the ones that we can get from our own kind of herbal pharmacopoeia. And a good herbalist, I think, is one of the best allies in an, in an area such as adrenal support and regeneration. Um, you mentioned CoQ10 before. Mm. And um, 
What's interesting to me is the effect that not only does it work on the electron transfer chain um, in releasing energy, but also coenzyme Q10 and, you know, the tocotrienols help to stabilise the LDL molecules, mm. which is important in adrenal function. I think that's a real key it thing. It is. It is. And you've got to, you have to maintain, if you've got LDL cholesterol, it's like having a t- dry tinderbox around the place. You have to maintain antioxidants very, very well. Mm. And so this is a time where the antioxidant protection of the LDL is critical to the effect of transfer. That LDL cholesterol is going to release the cholesterol molecules, go through pregnenolone and then down its little pathways to each of those other hormones. So the CoQ10 allows for the stability and the availability of that. CoQ10, I mean, as far as I'm aware from the research around, the CoQ10 doses we're talking about are quite big for adrenals. So they're in that order of 300 to 750 milligrams a day. These are not commonly prescribed, but it is remarkable in clinical practice. You give people 70, 50, 75 or 150, they're like, oh, yeah, it's a bit better. Mm. But you find the dose that's right, and there is a point at which they say, well, that's a significant difference. And I'm always surprised at how varied that dose can be. CoQ10 is a very, very potent agent but it's often misused because it's underdosed, underdosed and we think it's, yes. that's, not, that's not valuable. That's, yeah. What's that doing? So maybe it's a case for, for this group of patients to be using the ubiquinol, the active CoQ10, would you say? Or? I, I think in principle that's the case. I mean, the, the, the problem that you have is ubiquinol is costly and the ubiquinone is not as costly. Mm-hmm. But if you've got a person under stress, under the pump, and what you're wanting is the ready-made molecule to do the job that you're wanting it to do, then you do go with ubiquinol. And what sort of dosage of magnesium would you use? Well, there's controversy about that. It's at least 300 milligrams elemental per day. And 300 milligrams, the the classic problem is people say, oh, I got 300 milligrams of, you know, uh, say magnesium amino acid chelate, of which there is maybe 40 or 50 milligrams of magnesium. Mm -hmm. Getting the elemental dose up to that 300 to 750 milligram dose, yeah, it's probably best done not with tablets, it's probably best done with powder mixtures and getting them up to that dose is not easy if you try and get pills into them. Mm-hmm. But we've even heard then at the conference on anti-aging that getting magnesium even up to doses of over a gram elemental per day, and I have patients, I have very, you know, patients I know very well over the years, one of them cannot function under 1,200 milligrams elemental a day, wow. but is back at work at 1,500 milligrams elemental. Yep. It is really hard to get 1,500 milligrams elemental Orally. over a year. <laughs> so she injects every yeah. second day yeah. and she takes the oral doses to the best of her ability in between. But it's chalk and cheese. For her, drop below that threshold, things go wrong, get above that threshold, and life is back to normal. And no problems with her, with this patient? No, no. hypermagnesemia? No. no. No, we measure red cell magnesium, we measure all of that. She's maintaining no. stability with a dose that you would think would overload a person dramatically. Yeah. But these are particular types of illnesses. The magnesium losing, you know, the, we keep the magnesium inside the cells. If you lose the ability to maintain that pump that keeps magnesium in the cell and mm-hmm. it starts to leak out, those leaky membranes result in massive magnesium loss. So we use a mass effect. It's not the right way of doing it. If we could just walk in there and fix the membranes and fix the calcium magnesium pumps, we'd do it. But you know, that's a little bit trickier to do. And just to wrap up, um, you know, we spoke very briefly about um, sleep and um, and its issues. I'm trying yeah. to trying to get sleep normalised. 
But what about stress management? You and I have discussed at length the CBT versus mindfulness. Yeah, yeah as, I, as I said, CBT is the prostitute of uh, <laughs> health. It is whatever you want it to be. And the studies done when they said, what do the doctors do when they're using CBT? Is I, One of them was, I tell the person to get their act together and stop being a pussy. And so that idea <laughs> that CBT is beating somebody else up so that their brain takes control of it, thankfully, it's disappearing a bit. Thankfully, we're getting back to mindfulness, meditation. We're getting back to things which do not kind of push onto you that you have the responsibility to just get rid of those symptoms mm. that you're suffering. Mm. I've found the problem with CBT is you can get short-term benefits and people say, oh, I'm fine now, I'm doing CBT. Stop. And a year later, they are so much worse in their health. Mm. And then they're back saying, what it did was it stopped me complaining about the symptoms, but the symptoms never went away. I was just talking myself out of it. Whereas mindfulness meditation, giving yourself the chance not only to recover but to relax, to allow things to get past, that has profound influences on the way the brain functions and on the demands that are placed by the hypothalamus and pituitary. I also want to put in just one word here. Neuroinflammation is a big topic right at the moment. I saw a patient just yesterday where finally her MRI um, or her what's called magnetic resonance spectrometry, spectrometry showed you know, these, the imagery is saying this is neuroinflammation. These are mysterious illnesses where inflammation in the brain is not with immune cells. It's the microglia. It's the 90% of the brain volume, which is these uh, support cells. And we see different signs of neuroinflammation. But that neuroinflammation has profound impacts on the ability of the hypothalamus and the regulatory system to do their job. And the way we're seeing it now is neuroinflammation almost pushes the body into hibernation. The only way to stop the inflammation of the of the nervous system around the brain is to close down things, to go to a very low level of function, to sacrifice memory, concentration. And we're now seeing these scans showing persistently reduced gray matter, gray matter mass of the brain, low level function, patchy uptake of uh, nutrients. And we're building a picture <clears throat> that neuroinflammation is the thing that we have not resolved very well. If we were able to do something and get in there and protect the brain and resolve that inflammation and understand why it's going on, then we wouldn't be going through all of the other stuff with the HPA axis work. We would be able to get back to some protocol which takes the inflammation out of the way and allows the person to restore their normal pituitary and glandular function. So it's a, it's a thing to watch for the future. It's difficult mm. to do now. There's a lot of uh, new <coughs> drugs that are out there being trialled for this purpose. But there's also... Now, a bunch of herbs, some of the ginsenicides and uh, some of, some of the, even L-theanine, you know, just simple green tea, tea, green tea extracts. Um, these are things which are putting out those fires. People discover them themselves. And what was thought to be placebo effects is, in fact, direct um, benefit to reducing inflammation in those parts of the brain. I think, once again, you know, like, not saying this is a drug-like effect but and uh, not, to, not necessarily appropriate in this instance, but when you're looking at these neuroinflammation or gut inflammation or joint inflammation, curcumin yeah. comes in <laughs> all oh, the does. time. And it's not this huge cortisol-like action. It's this mild dampening, yeah. a normalising of inflammation back to a regulatory form. And again, touching on lots and lots of receptors that seem to be in the right area for dampening this down, not in one big hit in one area, but spread out over a broad range of areas. It can be protective against carcinogenesis. It can be protective against inflammation. It has got a, a range of actions which are really, really potent. I'm, you know, I'm really 
keen to learn more about that. The first, the first that I had was last, you know this year hearing about it uh, in the biocidical seminar. So let's just recap on uh, a treatment program, if you like, for somebody yes. like this. Talk to them and, and get them to make decisions about getting relaxing deep sleep. Yes. Talk to them and get them to act on managing their stressors in their life, both dietary and emotional. Yes. Um, with regards to dietary, I think the number one thing would be to get them off a high fructose, high carb type diet and get them onto a much more diverse vegetable based with some good protein in there. And more, more generally, make sure that the gut is not a source of added inflammation and added load. And yep. so the gut, the diet, that's a really, really important mm. part of management for every one of these patients. And, and on that line, so good probiotics, which are going to help to dampen inflammation yep. and dampen that leaky gut, good fibres that are going to do so as well. Mm-hmm. Um, then you can work inwards towards the adrenal glands. So you can look at Vitamin C in, was it two grams per day? Two grams a day, calcium ascorbate, and the B5 around that 500 milligrams a day, and the magnesium somewhere above 300 milligrams a day, and the same with the ubiquinol. If you can get hold of the ubiquinol, 300 milligrams a day is the starting dose there, but the ubiquinol is the one that I think has got the best the best argument for rising raising the dose until you see the clinical effect. Yeah. The question of the sustainability of the cost of it, yes. that's a whole different thing. But yeah. people get a real hit when they say, oh, I finally start to feel a little bit more normal there. When you've protected the LDL and you're taking that gland back to efficient function, it's a real difference that they pick up within a matter of a couple of weeks. And um, just lastly, the herbs we use, those the various adaptogenic yeah. um, herbs like ginsengs, and some of those obviously aren't of the ginseng's um, genus, but um, so the withania, the Siberian ginseng, the American ginseng, which I think is a very interesting herb, having much more actions on the mind, and the more stimulating Korean ginseng. So you, yeah. do you tend to watch that or, or...? I tend to watch it. It's on my to-do list of what I want to do in my next life or later on <laughs> in this life. I wish to learn about herbs. I, there is something very potent about traditional medicines and thousands of years of experience wrapped up into kind of formula like this. Uh, nutritional environmental medicine doesn't drag you into those areas automatically, so I tend to hand off to, to, uh, to uh, traditional Chinese medicine Western herbalists and watch the effects of it. I'm, I'm a real fan of acupuncture when mm. it comes to adrenal responses yep. as well. And so watching those improvements gained from other modalities is a privilege, but one day, like every doctor, <laughs> I think I'm going to be better at it myself, even though I know I'm not. One, one last group of herbs, or if you like, I was going to add, is the, the various mushrooms. Yeah. And we know well the reishi and things like that, but there are some beautiful actions with the mushrooms that are pigeonholed into immune function, yeah. and they have vastly more nourishing effects on the body. So, yeah. well, I think that that and the diet and the herbs and some of the nutrients, but I do go for mindfulness, meditation, mm, rest, absolutely. sleep, eat your food, eat good food, and cut the sugars. There's a lot you can do in your lifestyle in the 21st century that makes a massive difference to the load on those adrenals. 